Welcome to the Getting Soul Fit Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Page, addict, alcoholic, turned sober and free, founder and owner of Catarse, a women's empowerment athleisure line and movement, fitness cover model, mind, body, and soul coach, intuitive empath, lover of laughter, donuts, authenticity, and addicted to growth. Each episode, I will host a special guest or topic that will help empower you to conquer any and all obstacles and fears to rise. This show is your one-stop shop for raw truth and unapologetic growth. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Getting Soul Fit podcast and part two of the interview with HG Tutor. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode, please do. HG Tutor is a world-renowned authority on narcissism and psychopathy. He is also an expert on the subject matter as he is diagnosed with both, with both narcissistic personality disorder and antisocial personality disorder. He has provided consultations to thousands and written many books on narcissism. I will be linking his information in the, the multiple channels to contact book consultations and purchase his books in the show notes. And um, if you didn't get a chance to listen to part one, I suggest you do. There's a wealth of information. I came to find his information as referred to me to aid me on my own healing journey from someone my therapist believes is both a narcissist and a psychopath. HG's wealth of knowledge has helped thousands understand narcissism more, break away from narcissistic relationships, as well as empower individuals to heal. HG, welcome back to the show, and I am excited to learn more from you today. Um, can I just say that, honestly, I have learned more from you than I have in my own studies and my own psychology degree thus far. I'm pleased to hear that, and thank you for inviting me back, Melissa. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you. And um, you gave us a lot of information on part one. Um, I really appreciate that. Um, and so a few, there's a several more questions that I had for you. And some of them, um, my own audience members have been messaging me uh, when they realized mm -hmm. I was going to be asking you more questions, um, some of these questions. So the word narcissist gets uh, thrown around a lot. Um could you define a true narcissist or rather someone who has narcissistic personality disorder? Well, there is, of course, the definition of narcissistic personality disorder as is defined in the DSM-5. So if one is going by that, then, of course, you have the relevant uh, aspects of that contained within the uh, DSM-5. In terms of the various things that there with regard to the preoccupation with fantasies and unrivaled success, uh, somebody who requires excessive admiration, someone who's interpersonally exploitative, somebody who lacks empathy, grandiose sense of self-importance, etc. And the difficulty with much of that is that people look at it and think, yes, but what does all of that actually mean? Mm -hmm. What does that translate into? And in order to help people understand I have explained what 
uh, a narcissist is from my perspective of being one and being involved and around many or more of my kind. And this is always the case with human behavior. We can, of course, talk about a spectrum of behavior. So all people have narcissistic traits. They exhibit a degree of selfishness, pride, vanity, anger, argumentativeness, and other traits besides. So everybody has them. But when you have a true narcissist, it's much more than just exhibiting narcissistic traits. They are there, they are numerous, and they are strong. But it's far more than that. And when you get over the line to deal with someone who is a narcissist, not narcissistic, but a narcissist, there are, of course, differing types of narcissist, which is something really that the DSM-5 doesn't really cater to mm. in the stricter sense of describing NPD. And so a narcissist is an individual, emotional empathy is an individual that pursues the prime aims when it comes to interactions or potential interactions with other human beings. And those prime aims are control, fuel, character traits and residual benefits. Very briefly, control is the necessity of having control, actual or perceived, because the narcissist has the ability to create an alternative world where that control is obtained. So, for instance, I could say to somebody, oh, be a star and go and get me a cold beer, would you? And I'm complimentary and ask them politely, and they go and get me a beer. So I've controlled that person to go and do something for me. Or I could say, do you think you could stop yapping while I'm trying to watch American Psycho? <laughs> Otherwise, I won't be very happy with you. And I perhaps fix them with a glare. And that individual then stops their yapping and stops flapping their gums so I can watch the program, tell the film in peace. I have controlled that person to stop doing something. But a narcissist can also control as a consequence of smearing, even though it's not directly over that person, or withdrawing ourselves from somebody threatening our sense of control gives us that control. So we can get control directly, indirectly, or also by withdrawal. So control is something that a narcissist must have at all times when we're involved with another person. We have to gain fuel, which basically is our lifeblood. So a response from somebody else, whether it's flattering us or telling us that they hate us or making us a cup of tea or having sex with us or buying us a gift or telling us that we've done a great job, or giving us a hug, whatever it might be. Those are all different forms of fuel which validate our existence. It tells us that we matter. And invariably, fuel and control can be mixed up together. So, for instance, if somebody says, I love you, HG, that demonstrates to me that they are both under control and they give me fuel. Character traits are just aspects of somebody's personality and lives that we acquire for ourselves and pass off as our own. And, <coughs> excuse me, when it comes to residual benefits, that's lots of different things. Money, somewhere to live, enjoyable sex, uh, access to networks, a facade, lots of different things. And so the DSM-5 doesn't tell you about those things. 
but that is part of what a narcissist requires. Either with the majority of narcissists subconsciously and unaware that that's what they're actually after, or with a smaller number of narcissists that are aware, we know full well that that's why we're doing it. So sometimes somebody would think, oh, this individual, but he says he loves me and he, he, he bought me roses, and he took me to nice restaurants. So th- that demonstrates that he loves me. No, it doesn't. If that person's a narcissist, what's happening there is his narcissism compels him to believe that he loves that person and causes him to be kind and generous and polite to that person in order to do what? Control, to get fuel from them by action and benefit. So a narcissist in the early stages of a seduction may well take that date or the girlfriend to a nice restaurant and compliment her on her and how her hair looks delightful. He really likes the outfit that she's wearing and he pays for dinner and then he takes her back home and they go in and they have the hanky-panky. And she thinks, oh gosh, this guy's really into me. No, if he's a narcissist, all that's happening there is his narcissism is directing him to behave in that way to control. It's not about loving her or caring about her. It's Those are the roots to getting the control and the fuel. So a narcissist is manipulative. Whenever we are involved with another person or contemplating it, there is a manipulation taking place. We do not suspend our narcissism. There is no such thing as a part-time narcissist. So even as I'm talking to you now, I am manipulating you. Pretty easy because you've asked me to speak to you and you're Mm -hmm. carefully listening to what I'm saying. So you're demonstrating you're under control. Your responses are giving me fuel so we don't have a problem. But I don't suspend my narcissism when I'm engaging this interview with you. I don't suspend my narcissism when I go to the baker's and buy a loaf of bread. My interaction with that person isn't born out of me being polite. It's born out of my narcissism needing me to control. So everything that the narcissist does when it comes to another person is linked to one or more of the prime aims. And that's something the DSM doesn't give you. As part of the pursuit of those prime aims, we are manipulative, which is picked up on the DSM-5. Some narcissists act in a grandiose manner to get to those prime aims. Some, All narcissists have an absence of emotional empathy to get to those prime aims. Some narcissists exhibit fake or cognitive empathy to get to the prime aims where the narcissist is exploitative with regards to interpersonal relationships. What's all that about? It's to get to the prime aims, where there's a requirement for excessive admiration. That doesn't happen with every narcissist, but where it does, it's again to get to the prime aims. So a narcissist is someone who's manipulative, exploitative, needs the prime aims, and has no emotional empathy. And those are the key aspects when you're dealing with someone who is a true narcissist. That's really, really important. You guys listen to that because I found that there's a big difference between um, cognitive empathy, as you stated, HG, which is, you know, fake empathy or pretending to be empathetic versus emotional empathy. There's a huge difference. And I know that um, previously in my own dealings with uh, someone I believed and my therapist believed was a narcissist, um, I got confused a lot of the times because I was like this person seemingly understood how I felt, but continued uh, bad behavior, right? And I came to learn that that was because that was cognitive empathy, Um, you know? So another question that I get asked a lot and questions that I've I've wondered myself, um, because there's so many different um, thought processes when it comes to what defines a psychopath versus a sociopath. 
What are your thoughts on that? And can you define those? Well, <clears throat> psychopath and sociopath aren't actually uh, diagnoses of themselves. Mm-hmm. As you know, it's antisocial personality yeah. disorder. And so, but it's easier to describe somebody as a psychopath. And that's why I use the term. Um, a general distinction is to suggest that psychopaths are born and sociopaths are made. Mm-hmm. And that there is that kind of difference there, uh, that, that um, sociopaths can present more in a sort of somewhat skittish, more haphazard way, whereas your psychopath is a lot sort of cooler and removed. I have found, though, in my experience, that with certain uh, clinicians, etc., they tend to use the terms interchangeably mm. and don't really sort of stick to any clear definition. So they will talk about someone having antisocial personality disorder and therefore is a sociopath, and then they'll later on say they have antisocial personality disorder and they are a psychopath. So they... I've witnessed instances where they'll use them interchangeably. So if we look at it that way and say, basically, it's an all-encompassing term. So essentially, that somebody who has antisocial personality disorder is both psychopath and you could also call them a sociopath. Then with that, you've got an individual who it tends to show impulsivity and is consistently irresponsible. There's no remorse, but that's similar that you'll find with a narcissist. There's no there's no remorse there. The psychopath or sociopath is deceitful, but so is a narcissist. Mm-hmm. There's sometimes there'll be law breaking, but again, not always. There's often a reckless disregard for their own safety or the safety of others. One aspect also is the way that fear is processed. So a narcissist experiences fear. Indeed, fear can compel the narcissist to pursue the prime aims. Whereas somebody with antisocial personality disorder processes fear in a different way so that it's not picked upon and recognized. So, for instance, in a a very simple way, um, I don't experience fear because I'm a hybrid of both narcissist and psychopath, antisocial personality disorder, and I don't experience anxiety. So I have that more uh, sort of remote, cold, clinical approach. I don't need the fuel the same extent that a narcissist does. I still need it because of my hybrid qualities, but I don't need it to the extent that a narcissist does. And another way to help people understand is that at the heart of a narcissist or somebody with antisocial personality disorder is an emptiness. There's an emptiness behind what you see. The narcissist subconsciously fights against that, not that emptiness, trying to fill it up with the fuel fighting against that sensation. A pure psychopath embraces that emptiness, is content with actually that emptiness, doesn't care that people might witness that emptiness. They don't need fuel, you see. So a distinction between the two is that a narcissist would fight against that compared to a psychopath that embraces it. And so you will have lots of similarities Many people that have antisocial personality disorder will have strong narcissistic traits. They might not hit the definition consistent with narcissistic personality disorder, but you'll invariably find if somebody has antisocial personality disorder, they will show significant narcissistic traits as Mm. well. And indeed, the two conditions do have some degree of overlap. But as I say, the distinctions really are the processing of fear, Uh, to some extent to do with uh, impulsiveness and compulsive behaviours, 
uh, to do with the way that the emptiness is regarded and embraced. So there are similarities between the conditions and then there are also some differences too. Okay, that does help clear things up. Thank you. Um, what would a narcissist look for for a potential fuel source on social media like Instagram or growing by popularity TikTok? And the reason why I've, I'm asking this specific thing is that, you know, a lot of us do have social media and mm-hmm. um, I've had other people ask me that in my personal experience, how was I found and all these other questions, mm-hmm. a lot of it does link back to social media. Uh-huh. Well, <clears throat> I think to be clear, what people need to understand is that the moment that a narcissist interacts with you, you are now in the narcissist fuel matrix. Mm. And the fuel matrix, and you can learn more about this in my excellent book, Fuel, explains that you have rankings. And so you have tertiary sources, least potent fuel, secondary sources, moderate potency, and then the primary source, most potent. And so if you don't know the narcissist, okay, and so the narcissist comes across you, your social media profile, and strikes up a conversation with you through messaging, at that juncture, you are a tertiary source. So you're already in the narcissist fuel matrix. Mm -hmm. Your fuel isn't very potent. And let's say you're messaging, so you're not giving a lot of fuel either because it's just through the written word. Now, the narcissist either subconsciously or consciously is looking to control you. No problem there because you're having a pleasant conversation. Fuel needs to be obtained. Your responses to the narcissist's message are providing fuel. It might not be the case that character traits and residual benefits are particularly being pursued at this juncture. But what the narcissism will also potentially be considering is, could you be a bigger prize than a tertiary source? Now, it might be that the narcissist is in the golden period with his girlfriend, the intimate partner primary source, which means he is not looking to seduce you in a sexual or romantic sense because he has only got eyes for his IPPS. She's in the golden period. She's wonderful. So therefore, the conversation with you is likely just to remain polite and you might just stay a tertiary source. You have a one-off pleasant discussion that's the end of it. Why? Because the narcissist doesn't need to promote you because he's got a fully functioning, brilliant IPPS and therefore he doesn't need to replace her. But let's say she is in devaluation, which means she's painted black. This juncture, the narcissist is looking for a replacement, maybe not immediately. And therefore, in the conversation with you, If the narcissist senses subconsciously or sees indicators consciously that you're easy to control and that you're starting to provide quite a lot of fuel and that various empathic and class and special traits are being exhibited, which I talk about in my publication, Sitting Target, the narcissism basically thinks this one could make an excellent replacement, this one could become the intimate partner primary source. And therefore, if that sensation arises, the narcissist will then look to draw you in faster. 
So you could expect to be complimented. You can expect that there'll be a monopolization of your time, lots of messages. And so when the narcissist first interacts with you, it very much depends on what else is going on in the fuel matrix as to whether it goes any further or whether it just might be a simple interaction to control you and draw fuel. If there is a need to replace the intimate partner primary source, or you're seen as advantageous, that there might be then an escalation. And so the narcissist is looking for things that show that you're easy to control, indicators as to your empathic status. So for instance, that would be things like, <clears throat> what language are you using when you're responding? If it's yeses and nos, that's quite difficult. Whereas if you're more flowery in your responses and it's, I love this, or I really enjoy talking to you, you're showing that you care, you're showing that you're providing fuel. What's your profile exhibit? Does it show, for instance, that you like to look after animals and rescue mm. dogs? That's an indicator of an empathic trait. Perhaps you've been recently bereaved and you've wished your father happy heavenly birthday. There's a vulnerability that the narcissist could exploit. Do you are you involved in charitable activities? Those are also those are often uh, indicators of empathic traits. The language that you use and the way that you respond to people. Does the narcissist see, for example, that you prefer nights in rather than tripping the light fantastic? If so, that might indicate that you're, to an extent, perhaps a little bit lonely and that you're not seeing anybody, and therefore, in such circumstances, that you're easier to pick off. So there's lots of things like um, going to greater detail about all of this in one of my videos, which is uh, uh, the, uh, the online target and also in considerable detail in the book, Sitting Target, to tell you about the things that we see that indicate that you're um, going to make a potential intimate partner secondary source or even intimate partner primary source. And therefore, we hone in on those things. And basically, it's showing empathic traits, class traits. Class traits are, for instance, if you have a somatic narcissist, therefore mm. one that's interested in appearances and money and so forth. So, for instance, if you if you put up quite a lot of selfies in your bikini and you're showing off uh, a real hard body and you're dining out at posh restaurants and you're putting up images of you buying new clothing and you've got a fast flash car, a somatic narcissist will hone in on that. If a cerebral narcissist, you're a member of the Literary and Philosophical Society, play a musical instrument, you're talking about your involvement in film club, a cerebral narcissist will be likely to pick up on that. Class traits are things, for example... Have you perhaps been tenderized by a narcissist already? Is there anything in your feed that talks about, oh, you know, people um, not deserving your trust and all men are wankers or things like <laughs> that, that you're going on about a, a relationship having gone wrong in the past or, you know, I'm making it my mission to avoid toxic people and so forth. That may show that you've been involved with the narcissist. The narcissist will pick up on that. If, for instance, you've got some kind of vulnerability occasioned by certain fears. So you might say, oh, goodness me, Halloween's coming. I can't stand it. You know, I'm terrified of ghosts and things that go bump in the night. Bang, there's a vulnerability that the narcissist might pick up on. And there's lots of different ones. But essentially, what you put out there in cyberspace, a narcissist will either subconsciously or consciously pick up on and it will help the narcissist determine whether you're a decent target. So people really should have regard to just how much they're showing the world through that window of social media. 
Yes. Very, very important um, message there. <laughs> um, and also you guys use the art of discernment when it comes to who you accept, um, who requests to follow you on social media as well. Um, one of the terms that we hear a lot uh, and people don't know until they, unless they have dealt with an actual narcissist is um, how hard it is to heal from this form of treatment. Um, so can you kind of cover uh, what is silent treatment? Okay. The silent treatment can take two forms in terms of a present silent treatment or an absent silent treatment. So a present silent treatment is the assertion of control over the victim by a present withdrawal. Namely, we're in the same room as you, but we don't talk to you. Mm. We might sit and glare at you, give you the cold shoulder, sit there with our arms folded, possibly certain narcissists sit there sulking. And what's happening there is because you have to be controlled, the narcissist goes to the silent treatment and essentially withdraws from you, but is actually still there. And in the narcissist's head, they will be thinking, you're a terrible individual and that merits not talking to you. There will be some perceived slight against the narcissist. And that silent treatment is designed to assert control over you because invariably, rather than the victim go, oh, well, if you're going to be a big gay baby sulking, I'll go and do something else and walk off. Most victims go, what's the matter? What's the matter? Why aren't you talking to me? What have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? And when you're doing that, although you're asking questions of the narcissist, they are about yourself rather than the narcissist. So what have I done wrong? What have I said to upset you? So you're actually, although you're asking questions, you're not really putting the narcissist under any pressure there, you're exhibiting that you're the one that's feeling the pressure, thus showing that you're being controlled and your responses are giving fuel to the narcissist. So the narcissist is getting what he or she wants. An absent silent treatment is where the narcissist walks off and withdraws from you, which again is a form of assertion of control and then goes off and does something else. Now, what many people do, however, is that they confuse a situation where they have been shelved for a silent treatment. When you are no longer on the radar of the, radar of the narcissist, you simply don't exist. So sometimes where, for instance, let's say you're not living with the narcissist, but your boyfriend and girlfriend, so you go around to each other's houses and meet up and so forth, all of a sudden you find that you try to call the narcissist and it, your number has been blocked and you go around and they won't open the door. When you turn up and knock on the door, if they're there, they're giving you, a, in effect, a present silent treatment because they're ignoring you. When you walk away, the silent treatment has, in effect, ended because you've gone off the radar and you've gone back onto the shelf and the narcissist isn't considering you. And then what might happen is you then try and get in contact with the narcissist and find that you're able to ring up. Your number hasn't been blocked. However, the narcissist doesn't answer the phone. And assuming that they've seen that you ring, again, that's giving you a present silent treatment when they ignore your telephone call. But then afterwards, because they've asserted control over you through staying in that position of withdrawal by not answering the telephone call, and you don't ring again, you disappear off the radar. 
And the narcissist isn't there thinking, I'm now going to give this person a two-week silent treatment. But often the victim thinks, I've been subjected to two weeks of silence. They had deliberately not spoken to me for two weeks. No. It's only when you come up on the radar, again, by you trying to get in touch with the narcissist and find that the narcissist is ignoring you, that the silent treatment, a fresh one, starts. And then you you back off. You, you go back onto the shelf. The narcissist isn't engaging with you. So often people confuse being placed on the shelf with the silent treatment. Indeed, sometimes victims think, oh, I've not heard from him in a week. He's given me the silent treatment. Not necessarily so. The narcissist hasn't considered you at all. You have to be considered to be given the silent treatment. So if you're in the shelf dynamic with a narcissist and the narcissist is focused on other people and not you, and you've not heard from the narcissist, you will often think, I'm being given a silent treatment, but actually you're not. You're on the shelf. You don't exist as far as the narcissist is aware. And if in that one-week period you haven't attempted to get in touch with the narcissist, then you've not come up on the radar. So there's no need for the narcissist to deal with you. And the narcissist hasn't thought about you because they're focused elsewhere. It's only when you come up on the radar and the narcissist chooses not to interact with you that you're being given a silent treatment. But the purpose of a silent treatment goes back to the, the prime aims once again, and is designed to assert control and draw fuel in certain instances. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. So even if someone is, say, say you're the romantic partner, they, a narcissist can put you on the shelf and not even consider it like it's silent treatment. Exactly. The victim invariably thinks, oh, I'm being given a silent treatment. Yeah. But what happens is when you have the shelf dynamic, mm -hmm. so the narcissist is watching television and he sees an actress that reminds him of his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. She's on the radar. His narcissism asks, is the girlfriend under control? Yes or no? This happens in the subconscious. He has no information about his girlfriend. Therefore, it's assumed she's not under control. And so the narcissist then says, well, we need to get your girlfriend under control. Okay, shall we hoover her, i.e. send a message? And invariably, the narcissist, because it's easy to do that, sends her a message, hey, how are you doing? And she replies, oh, good to hear from you. What are you up to? And they have a text exchange. He's just taken that person off the shelf and has interacted with her in a 15-minute text exchange. It then naturally ends, perhaps saying, maybe see you tomorrow or whatever. She's back on the shelf and she's forgotten about. Now, the following day comes, she anticipates that he's going to get in touch because he didn't make reference to let's hang out tomorrow. Mm -hmm. However, he's now focused on Annie Nonick as somebody else at the office, or he's playing football with his mates and gone to the pub. And because his mind operates in a different way to a non-narcissist, he doesn't think to himself, oh, yes, I said yesterday that I would do something with my girlfriend. I better give her a call. He's completely forgotten about her. She doesn't exist because there's nothing reminding him of her existence. So if she sits there and doesn't bother getting in touch with him, she then thinks, oh, he's not called. He's given me a silent treatment. No, he hasn't. She sat on the shelf and he's just occupied with other appliances. If she texts him and then says, hey, where are you? I thought we were hanging out. She's now challenging him because she's telling him that he's done something wrong. His narcissism will say, is the girlfriend under control? No, she's not. She's querying 
She's questioning the narcissist. Therefore, she's challenging the narcissist, threatening the sense of control. We must nullify that threat to control. How should we do it? Well, it might be that he sends a message back going, oh, really sorry, something came up at work. Perhaps see you tomorrow instead. I'll give you a call in the morning. Comfort crumb is given to her. Fobs are off, possible future faking, saying that he'll call tomorrow, using the future to control the now. Or his narcissism might cause him, because he's too busy focused on Annie Nonickers, to say he doesn't even reply to his girlfriend. He's given her the silent treatment at that point because she's come up on the radar with her text message. Her text message threatens his sense of control, but narcissism determines, rather than hoover her to assert control or do so indirectly by smearing her, we'll just go to the third assertion of control, stay in a position of withdrawal, and he doesn't answer her and gives her that short, silent treatment by failing to reply to her text. She doesn't get an answer, so she sends another one. Why are you ignoring me? That, again, is threatening his sense of control. The narcissism could either hoover her, smear her, or, again, he just stays in a position of withdrawal and doesn't answer her message. She gets another silent treatment. Then, shortly thereafter, he's focused on other people she's forgotten about. She's staying on the shelf. And so the dynamic can go on in that way. And so often people think that they're being given an elongated silent treatment when they're not. It's punctuated silent treatments that are occurring because a silent treatment will only occur as a consequence of you coming up on the narcissist's radar and a narcissist selecting, consciously or subconsciously, to ignore you. Then once that's done and control has been obtained, job done, you disappear into the ether until you come back again. Wow. Okay. Um, what um, Can you go over a couple other mind games that a narcissist will play on a primary source of fuel? Well, there's lots that yeah. uh, narcissists would engage in. A common one, of course, is to distort your reality and cause you to question it through gaslighting. And most of the time, that's actually done subconsciously by a narcissist, which many people struggle to grasp and think, no, they, must, they know what they're doing. But what happens is this. <clears throat> you say to the narcissist, um, would you go and uh, would you pick up uh, six bottles of champagne on your way back for the dinner party this evening? So the narcissist goes off, and because he has no sense of accountability and a sense of entitlement to do what he wants, he goes off and he plays football with his mates and he completely forgets to get the champagne. And when he comes back in, the first thing that his girlfriend says to him is, did you buy the champagne? She's challenging him. She's threatening his sense of control. And the first line of the narcissistic defense is denial. So he'll go, what are you talking about? You didn't ask me to get any champagne. And she'll go, yes, I did. I said to you this morning to get something. He goes, no, you didn't. Now, at that point, because he's an unaware narcissist, he is not doing this. Oh, I know she asked me for the champagne, but I'm going to be bloody-minded and deny that she asked me. He actually believes she never asked him because the way that his brain is wired, it revises history to delete what has gone on before and tell him with complete conviction she never asked. So when she keeps insisting to him, I said to you to get the champagne, he's thinking, are you nuts? I know that you never asked me to get the champagne. You're accusing me of forgetting it. There's something wrong with you. And to the victim, she's thinking, 
I remember telling him to get the champagne. How can you stand there and tell me a bare-faced lie? But in his world, it isn't a bare-faced lie. He genuinely believes that she never asked him. So the consequential impact is that she's being gaslighted. But it is actually, because it's an unaware narcissist, and he has to do it seamlessly, effectively, without hesitation or demurment. It has to be done in that way, and that his narcraft can't trust him to do it consciously. So it causes him to believe his own lies. But that mind game there is that she is told that she's wrong, and he denies her reality. And the reason is, is that he is functioning in an alternative reality, which is created by his narcissism. Because remember, and this is something that many victims struggle with, because they think that their reality is the reality. It isn't. It's just one form of reality. Everything that you see, hear, taste, feel, and smell is an interpretation that your brain places upon the signals. Your brain repeatedly tricks you. But you, as a non-narcissist, Melissa, and as homo sapiens, you've evolved in a very similar way to hundreds of millions, if not billions, of other people. Okay? So an example of the way that your way your mind plays tricks on you is that on the grassland, tens of thousands of years ago, your ancestor would look out of the corner of his eye and see a snake, so he'd run away. And when he looks back at a safe distance, he sees it was a stick. But he's absolutely certain he saw a snake. Why? His brain told him he did see a snake, so there was no hesitation. He retreated. It didn't take the chance of, is it or isn't it? Similarly, when you're being pursued by something, your vision naturally tunnels automatically, so you focus on your exit, and you're not distracted by a pair of beautiful Labutin shoes while you're being chased by a lion. So you go, ooh, shoes, and stop, and get eaten by the lion. Again, mm -hmm. your, the world isn't actually tunneling your brain makes it seem like it is as a self-defense mechanism. And narcissism is similar. It's a self-defense mechanism. So what happens is you have the reality, which is a shared reality by most people on the world, which therefore becomes labeled the reality. And then you have where the narcissist occupies, which is the narcissist's reality. But to the narcissist, that is the narcissist's reality. And what happens with victim and narcissist is they will witness similar events, but from different perspectives, which then results in the accusations of mind games. But it's only your aware narcissist that behaves in a Machiavellian fashion that knows that they're lying and deliberately lies. And so an aware narcissist knows that he didn't go and get the champagne and he knows he was asked to do it, but he's able with complete conviction to say, no, you never asked me. No, you, you, I think you're forgetting things again, my dear. He knows that he's lying because he's an aware narcissist, but most narcissists are unaware. And many people really struggle with the concept of he must know what he's doing. No, because if he did, where he's an unaware narcissist, his narcraft isn't fast enough to implement it straight away. Take, for example, if I jab a sharp stick towards your face, towards one of your eyes, you do not do this. Oh, HG's jabbing a sharp stick towards my eye. That could blind me. I think I'd better move my head back and swat the stick away. You don't do that. You just immediately jerk your head back and push the stick away without thinking. You touch something hot. You don't go, 
oh, that hurts. I think I better lift my hand off this because it's burning me. You just go, ow, and reflect, and as a reflex, remove your hand from it. It's similar with the unaware narcissist. They will tell those lies as a matter of it being their truth. So they do so with complete conviction. That's why narcissists will return after an argument and act as if nothing has happened, because in their reality, nothing has because of compartmentalization, the blazing row that they've just had with you, they walk out to assert control over you by withdrawal. When they come back in, reset buttons, press, hey, how are you doing? And you're sat there thinking, he's got a cheek, ask me that after all the things he's just said to me. What he's just said to you is forgotten about. It's gone in the waste bin. But then when you bring it back up and say to him, why are you being nice to me now? You, you get a puzzled look. And the reason you get a puzzled look is he can't understand why you're being aggressive. Why? His narcissism has deleted what went on before. If you then say to him, you've got a cheat coming in here playing all nice with me after all the horrible things that you've just said to me. Again, he may well deny it. What are you talking about? We just had a massive row. No, we haven't. And you're thinking, he must be nuts. That was 10 minutes ago and he's already denying it. Other narcissists may well turn around and go, oh, don't, you know, hey, you know, I'd had a bad day. Forget about it. And they, and they just dismiss it and deflect from it instead. Whereas anybody else, if they had had a huge row, they would probably stay out of the way for a while to let things cool down and, would, and then would come slinking back, being all apologetic, because they know what's gone on beforehand. But with the narcissist, again, one of the mind games that's played, but, it, but it's generated when it's unaware narcissist is a matter of instinct, is quite simply this. Uh, to come back and act as if nothing has happened because in their world, nothing did. It's like they're meeting you for the first time. Wow. <laughs> one of the questions I get, and, and this is something I used to wonder too, I don't as much anymore, but one of the questions I get a lot is um, unaware or aware narcissist. I mean, I'm assuming the aware narcissist does, but do does the unaware narcissist know when they are hurting you? Yes and no. Some unaware narcissists don't even have the awareness of what they're actually doing. Mm. And so you could start crying and they look at you genuinely confused as to why are you crying? Because they don't realize that what they're doing is causing a problem for you. Those are the lesser narcissists. A mid-range narcissist knows that they're hurting you, but you deserve it. So invariably, mm. what they will do is they will say, I know it upsets you when you don't when I don't speak to you, but if you didn't nag me so often, I wouldn't need a time out. And so with the mid-range narcissist, they know that they're engaging in a behavior that's problematic, but it's your fault in some way, therefore you deserve it. Now, is it your fault? Well, from the narcissistic perspective, it is. And this is when the narcissist will use the truth, the half truth or nowhere near the truth against you. So let's use our silent treatment and nagging example. Mm -hmm. A narcissist says to you, I need a time out. That's why I don't speak to you, because you're always nagging me. You've never nagged the narcissist once. Therefore, the narcissist is using an outright lie. It's nowhere near the truth. But his narcissism convinces him that you are a nag. You'll notice often narcissists talk in terms of absolutes. You never do this. You always do this. It, there's never any gray about it. You're yeah. always on my case. You never tell me you love me. You're always flirting with other people, okay? And that's the black and white thinking that's being exhibited. So there, the narcissist uses a complete fabrication. 
you actually did, in another scenario, you did nag the narcissist, but you only nag the narcissist because it's his job to take the trash out and he and he doesn't do it. That's a half-truth mm-hmm. because he did something first that caused you to nag him, which caused him to give you a silent treatment. And his narcissism edits that film to cut out his bad behaviour at the beginning so that he's not accountable because accountability affects control. And instead, what then happens is the film starts part way through with you nagging him for no reason. It forgets about the fact that he'd not taken the trash out. That's a half truth. And then sometimes the narcissist will use the truth against you. So you may well have been nagging him for no reason. That threatens his sense of control. So he uses that against you. So you commonly see some narcissists may call out another narcissist for their behavior using the truth of their behavior. So a narcissist can tell the truth and a narcissist can use the truth as you understand it to be. So there is a confluence of those two perspectives that I was talking about. So a good example of that involved Harry's wife and the broadcaster Piers Morgan. Piers Morgan's a narcissist as well as Harry's wife and he repeatedly calls out her behaviour. And some people say, oh, well, you know, Piers, he's not a narcissist, he's just telling the truth. No, he's a narcissist using the truth as you understand it against Harry's wife to assert control over her. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. In the same way, when I share all of this brilliant, insightful information with you, I am using the truth of the way that my kind behave to assert control over my viewers and readership in a benign way by giving you the truth of how we function so that you gain that understanding. By sharing that information with you, I'm not doing it because I care. I don't have any emotional empathy. I'm not being altruistic. I share this information. I use the truth to control all of you and that your responses give me fuel and it extends my legacy, which is a residual benefit, which is the main reason that I do all of this. But I'm using the truth of the way that we behave to get to the prime aims in terms of my interactions with my readership and viewership. Wow. Um, And I have, I have listened to some of your other interviews where people, I'm glad you brought that up, have asked you, well, then are you doing this to be nice? Are you, (laughs) are you trying to help everybody? Um, So I'm glad you spoke to that. Um, Mm -hmm. So what is, um, what is mirroring? Okay. So with mirroring, that is a form of manipulation Mm -hmm. whereby we, in essence, use your own character traits and we replicate your behaviour because human beings have a herd mentality and it's the birds of a feather flock together idea. So you feel at your safest with someone that's similar to you and you feel attracted Mm -hmm. to somebody that is similar to you. So what happens is, when it comes to the seduction of a romantic partner, you, as a non-narcissist, are actually seeking your other half. You're mm-hmm. seeking, a sim- not a facsimile, but a very similar version of who you are. So you're seeking someone of similar levels of physical attractiveness to you, somebody of similar levels of intelligence, similar moral outlook similar political or religious views, not necessarily identical. there will be some differences. You'll have someone who has similar tastes in music or art or entertainment, similar sexual preferences and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is 
the narcissist, in order to control you, picks up on this. And what we do is we mirror yourself back at you. So if you are interested, let's say, in equestrianism, the narcissist will demonstrate an interest in equestrianism. If you don't like a particular Mm -hmm. type of food, the narcissist will mimic that by saying, no, I don't like uh, Mexican food either. It tends to repeat on me. Let's go and have an Italian instead, knowing that you really like Italian food. And so the narcissist will sometimes mirror mirror your own body language, mirror your likes and dislikes, mirror some of your behaviours, mirror your views, because then you are actually subconsciously falling in love with yourself, which sounds quite ironic because that sounds very narcissistic, but it's not Mm -hmm. because it makes absolute sense. Because if you have somebody that's similar to you, your relationship stands the best chance of success. So what we do, shapeshifters that we are, is come along and mirror your characteristics and traits back at you so you're more attracted to us, which makes you easier to control, draw fuel from, etc. So mirroring is mimicking your behaviours, and it's not just you. We will do it with other people, with people that we're friends with, with somebody that we've met just in a bar, in order to assert control over them. So it's a form of manipulation that is done to assert control and draw fuel and maybe lead to the pathway to certain uh, character traits and residual benefits. Well, and the the eye-opening thing there too is sometimes a narcissist will tell you without using that word mirroring, they won't say I'm mirroring you, but um, the person that I dealt with, um, they actually looked at my phone when I wasn't looking and downloaded a station on my Pandora that mm-hmm. not many people have because it's a soundtrack and they put it on their phone and then proceeded to play that for me later so that I could be like, oh my gosh, you have the station too? Not many people have yeah. that. You know? Yeah, that's mirroring. That's, that's mirroring. Right. That's, and is, they later, yeah. it, yes, and they later admitted that, that they... And I remember thinking uh, that felt un- uneasy to hear that, but mm-hmm. my emotional brain, right, was like, oh, that's so sweet. You really liked me. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and why would you think anything other than you think this person's taking an interest and, yes. hey, they like the t- same type of uh, music as I do or say yes. radio station. That's really great. And that's quite niche. Oh, what a marvelous serendipity. Serendipity. Yes, serendipities. <laughs> Mm. The the mirroring can go even further Uh because what you can have is that a narcissist may actually start to adopt and we use this again. For instance, one of the ways that Harry's wife asserts control over Prince Harry is by duplicating his dead mother, Diana, the former Princess of Wales. So what she did is she she wore a similar perfume to that which was worn by Diana. In certain instances, she dresses like her. She adopts this humanitarian stance like Diana oh, did. So she, so she mirrors her spouse's dead mother, acquiring her character traits in order to tighten her control over him. So she's not necessarily mirroring, in that instance, Prince Harry's characteristics. He, she's mirroring his dead mother's because that resonates. Her narcissism picks up on the fact that that resonates with him because he has a 
he has a vulnerability. He lost his mother when he was a young boy. And therefore, that vulnerability can be exploited by her as a narcissist by subtly doing things, although they're not that subtle because we've picked up on them, to Mm -hmm. duplicate Diana so that it makes him feel subconsciously at home with her, thus making him easier to control. Oh, that's, wow, that's, um, (laughs) what about, um, I didn't add this on my questionnaire, but that made me think of something. What about, uh, would a narcissist use um, a behavioral pattern that they picked up on a prior primary source of supply and use that on a current so in other words, yes. Okay. <laughs> certain, narciss- certain narcissists sort of have a standard modus operandi. A common one, for instance, is the use of music to seduce. So, okay, what you what will often happen is, and certain narcissists, of course, lack any imagination or originality whatsoever. <laughs> so they'll almost have a stock playlist of romantic tunes, which he used on Anna, and then he used on Belinda. And then he used on Claire, and then he moved on Deborah, and then he used it on Eve. So each girlfriend gets that same set of songs. And if they were ever to happen to talk to one another about their involvement with Nick the narcissist, they'd go, Oh, yes, when we first met, he played, I don't know, The Power of Love by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And you go, Oh, he played that for me after our first date. Yes, and me too. Because his narcissism recognizes that that worked. So he'll try it again. And you'll try it again on the next one. And it's basically particular types of narcissists. They don't have a very wide bandwidth in terms of their capabilities. And the narcissism wants the maximum return for the minimum investment. So if it's worked before, there's a good chance it'll work again and again and again. And as the old maxim says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So his approach doesn't need too much deviation. And so similarly, it might be the case that he always purchases a particular perfume or a bottle of perfume as a gift. So he does that with A, then B, then C, then D. Mm-hmm. It might be that he always takes them to a particular type of romantic restaurants, a really cosy Italian, for example. So he takes A to it. And then when she's out of the way and he starts with B, he takes B. And if they were all to get together, find out that they took her, that they were all taken to San Carlo restaurant. And it almost becomes quite chilling for some victims because they find out that he used the same music, he said the same things to them, he bought them the same gifts and Mm -hmm. took them to the same places. And you think, oh, it was special. You know, he said, I've never been here before, but this is now our restaurant, which is precisely what he said to the previous intimate partner primary source and the one before that and the one before that. Mm -hmm. And even though the waiter thinks, oh, Nick Nixon again with a different woman, but doesn't say anything, of course. Nick behaves because his narcissism dictates to him that way, as if he's doing this for the first time. Nick, being an unaware narcissist, doesn't think there and say, oh, well, here I am with Eve in San Carlo, and I brought Deborah here, and I brought uh, Claire here, and I brought Belinda here, and I brought uh, Anna here. He thinks he's doing it for the first time because that's what his narcissism guides him to do. But yes, a narcissist, particularly those of lesser and mid-range, because they have less evolved narcissism and their narcraft is more limited, will engage in very similar behaviours in the way that they seduce people. There will sometimes, of course, be variations on the theme, but if it works with A, you'll give it a whirl with B, and and it'll work with B, so so therefore there's a good chance it'll work with C, and so on and so forth. 
I experienced that, but I also experienced the individual saying a quote that his ex-wife said to him before. And when I said, doesn't so-and-so say that he looked like someone had like hit him with a dump truck. Mm -hmm. So he was using her, her quotes. So what's happening there is there's character trait acquisition from his Mm ex-wife. He's using her words and passing them off as his own. Yes. Again, in the same in, in the same way that you'll have certain narcissists that will come out with something, and you and they they think that they're telling you some brilliant, profound quote, and actually yeah. everybody realizes, no, you just nicked that from J- J.F. Kennedy, or you yes. pinch that from you know you you, you pinch that from uh, J.K. Rowling or something. She wrote that in a Harry Potter book, and you're trying to pass it off as your own, and that's because the narcissist has no boundary recognition, operates with a sense of entitlement. They that some narcissists know that they pinched it and they know that they're passing it off and they don't give a rat's ass about it. But most narcissists honestly are led to believe by their narcissism that they're the first person to say that. And again, with Harry's wife, mm-hmm. she does this repeatedly. You can see that when she makes speeches and she puts stuff on her TIG blog, etc., she really thought she was telling you stuff that nobody had ever done before. So when she talks about being a mum, we've had billions of mums throughout the history of the world but she relays it as she's the only person that's ever given birth. And of course, there's an argument as to whether she actually has or not, but that's something else. But with she talks about it as if she's the only person that's ever done it. That when she talks about being uh, authentic and organic, that those are words which suddenly she's used in combination to great effect. And that it's a groundbreaking revelation. Everybody else is thinking, what's this utter horseshit of a word salad that I'm listening to? But she honestly thinks that it's brilliant that what she's telling you and all she's doing is regurgitating things that she's heard elsewhere, but she doesn't realize that because her narcissism doesn't allow her to know it. Oh my gosh. And you know, actually I've heard this before too um, with the person I was, I'm speaking about. Uh, (laughs) He, he threatened me not to talk to his ex-wife. He set up an ultimatum. Um, because they have children together and he's like, I'm glad that you're getting along with my ex-wife, but just so you know, you are not to speak to her one off. I do not want you becoming friends with her. And I found that to be really strange because wouldn't you want someone around your children that you're, that you're, that's met your children to get along with, um, the mother of your children. But later I found out, you know, it's because he didn't want me finding things out, um, but yeah. yeah. So his <laughs> so at that jun- at that juncture, you're painted white. The ex-wife's painted black. She is Satan. So everything about her is a potential risk to his yes. control over you. Therefore, his narcissism says you have to assert control in this moment over Melissa and also the ex-wife. So he does it this way. He issues that dictat to you: "Do not contact my ex-wife." That's him asserting control over you directly. And at the same time, he's indirectly asserting control over her by triangulating the two of you together. When you would go, okay, no, I won't do that, you signal that you're under control and you've also afforded him subconscious control of his Mm ex-wife because you've agreed to do what he wants and stay away. And therefore, the potential threat that she poses as painted black won't manifest because never the twain shall meet. It isn't because he stands there thinking she has got a list along as her arm of all the terrible things that I've done. 
Mm. He actually, what he thinks is, she's unreliable and treacherous and she'll spoil this relationship because that's what his narcissism is telling him about her because she's painted black. Remember, he has no accountability for his behaviours. So he's not going to think to himself, I know I treated her like crap and that's why she's got an axe to grind against me. He doesn't think in such terms. It's simply, she's the enemy. She is not to be believed. She's painted black. She's a threat to your control over Melissa. She's going to try and destroy that relationship. Therefore, okay. you must keep her away. So it's not done on a, on a specificity or particularization. He'll invariably say, you don't want to listen to anything that she says. She's envious that I've moved on and found somebody new. You don't want to listen to anything that she says because she abused me in the relationship. Mm-hmm. That's a common thing to talk yes. about the abusive ex. And I have a video about that, the abusive ex syndrome. Yeah, it's, yeah, not so many words. Yes, she was, he was concerned she would, she was going to manipulate me. <laughs> yeah, Somehow. because in, because in his world, he's uh, the victim of the manipulator. She's the manipulator. He's the victim. Oh gosh. Oh my goodness. That's a lot. That's okay. That makes sense though. Um, one of the most important questions that a lot of uh, people that I've spoken to uh, always ask is, you know, what is trauma bonding and how do you break this to start to heal? Trauma bonding is actually just a manifestation of what I uh, explain is the addiction between the empathic victim and the narcissist. So trauma bonding is just a strand of the addiction. Empathic people have an addiction to narcissists. And that addiction means that you're drawn naturally to want to be with the narcissist, even though it's not in your best interests. And your addiction manifests basically with a triple threat. One, it causes you to apply flawed logic. So you think you're doing something sensible when you're not. It corrupts your various empathic and narcissistic traits to cause you to involve yourself with the narcissist. And thirdly, it makes you feel a particular way. I call it the battery of feeling so that it's charged up so that you feel angry about the way that you've been treated. So you go and immediately have an argument with the narcissist that has caused you to interact with the narcissist, which is what your addiction wants. Your addiction wants you spending time with the narcissist, communicating with the narcissist, doing things in relation to the narcissist, talking about the narcissist with other people and thinking about the narcissist. Those are the five arenas of interaction. Trauma bonding is just a manifestation of the addiction. So that what happens is that you have had a regularity of involvement with the narcissist because of your addiction, and that addiction wants you to continue doing it. So that people will talk. People talk about that the trauma has bonded you to the narcissist. It hasn't. Your addiction is what binds you to the narcissist, and trauma bonding is just a sliver of that addiction. The addiction basically causes you to take leave of your senses, and when and causes what's called emotional thinking. So you're governed by bad decision making. So, for instance, many people they. The narcissist ends the relationship and is running around town with a new lady. And therefore, that victim thinks, I need to go and speak to him and find out why did he dump me? Why did he not tell me it was over? And why is he going around with her? What she got that I haven't? Wrong. Although that seems logical, your truth seeker trait is being corrupted to compel you to go and seek answers from the narcissist. Because when you go and seek answers from the narcissist, you are physically proximate to the narcissist and it feeds your addiction. 
So the addiction cons you by using emotional thinking to make you carry on interacting with the narcissist. It cons you by making you do things. So you go and see the narcissist or you send a text message to the narcissist or you go online and snoop on what the narcissist is up to or makes you go and chat with your friends about the latest piece of shithousery the narcissist is engaged in. Or it has you sitting there thinking, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Whenever you do any of those things, you keep feeding your addiction. And the more you feed your addiction, the more your emotional thinking increases, which means you're more likely to keep using emotional thinking and not use logic. So you get stuck on the narcissist's wheel of misery. You involve yourself with the narcissist, up goes your emotional thinking. You don't use logic. So you involve yourself more with the narcissist, which increases your emotional thinking. You don't use logic. You continue mm. to interact with the narcissist and on it goes. How do you deal with it? You implement a total no contact regime. So you stay out of those five arenas of interaction. It's hard because what happens is that addiction is going, Kui, I want you to go and spend time with the narcissist. So I'm going to convince you that you need to go and ask him why he's done what he's done to you. And rather than you go, no, that's a breach of no contact. I'm not doing it. You think, yes, that's a sensible thing. I will go and see the narcissist. Boom, you've just given in and you fed your addiction. And then you end up feeling upset and you're not moving forward. You have to go through the turbulence of your emotional thinking, making you feel anxious and fearful and angry and lamenting and hurting. But then as you lower your emotional thinking, Mm -hmm. those feelings will, will fall away and you'll start to use logic. So all of a sudden, you'll see it for what it is. And you basically have what I call crossing the emotional sea, where you are trying to use logic, but your emotional thinking is so strong, it often overwhelms and engulfs you. So you make mistakes and then go back to square one. And what you have to do is fight and fight hard. And when I consult with people, this is one of the main things that I teach people with a variety of techniques how to master that addiction. So the trauma bonding is just part of the addiction. So in a way, talking about trauma bonding isn't particularly helpful. What you have to talk about is your addiction to the narcissist, which you will always have, but you can manage it. And the thing is, your addiction is only a problem when you're around narcissists. Stay away from them. It's not going to be a problem for you. (laughs) Yes. And, you know, one thing I wish someone would have told me a long time ago um, was, you know, you will not get closure from a narcissist ever, 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 Correct. ever. <laughs> Absolutely right. Yeah. You make the closure. Yes. One thing that I always emphasize to the people that I speak with is when they talk about healing and recovering, etc. it's not about dealing with inner childhood wounds. That's a load of garbage. What you have to do is you must take responsibility because this is your life. And there's only one person that you can control, and that's you. You can't control us. We're designed not to be controlled. And however tempting it is to want to tell us that we're complete douche canoes or to (laughs) tell the whole world about this person's behavior, all you're doing is buying into our game again. And if you come on our battlefield, we'll win. And this isn't me saying that we're these these completely uh, impregnable, invulnerable, conquering machines. We're not. So if you go no contact with us, that's how you win. We absolutely hate it. The only person that you can control is you. Mm -hmm. So you don't try and enforce boundaries over us. You enforce them over yourself by saying, 
I will stay away from this person. I will not go and see them. I will I will change my number so they can't contact me. Mm-hmm. I will delete their number so I do not contact them. I will come off social media. I will resist that voice saying, have a sneak to see what he's doing. No, no. That's like being a drug addict and thinking, I'll just have a couple of lines. That'll be okay. The next thing you know, you've snorted three grams and it's the next morning you go, oh my God, I've gone and done it again. And that's really important, you guys. <laughs> really, really important. Yeah, because... um. It is very, very much, if you've been entangled with a narcissist, it is like an addiction and any kind of contact, whether it be direct or indirect, checking social media or whatever, if you have to change your number, I had to change my number, block all forms of contact, do it. Um, the quicker you go, no contact, the the quicker you can start to heal. Um, and I always That's say, right. like the, yeah. And, and then the best people say, well, Uh, you know, karma, 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 how can I get karma? And I'm like, you're not going to get karma. The best form of revenge is no revenge. Uh, Just do you. (laughs) That's all you can do. That's right. Well, karma is just a device to make people who've been defeated feel better about themselves. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the true definition of karma is what what you did in your past life. So if you're getting abused by a narcissist in this life, you really have to wonder what you did in the last life to deserve that. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah so well i appreciate the time with you today hg um thank you again so much i will leave your links again in the show notes for individuals to book consults with you highly recommend it um i've had a consultation with you and it really helped me um and also book links for access to your books of extensive knowledge um, is there anything else that you would like to add um, or comment on anything for the listeners? All I would say is that there is an extensive wealth of material that I provide across my YouTube channel, my blog, The Knowledge Vault, and through the various consultations that you made reference to. Use this unrivaled access to my mind. And if you do, and you follow what I tell you to do, you will achieve the freedom that you deserve. If Mm -hmm. you don't, you'll stay stuck. But this is an absolute golden opportunity for you to tap into the other side and use it to your advantage. I'd heartily recommend that people do. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. Not at all. You're very welcome. enjoy today's episode check out the show notes for today's details on the show and be sure to share with a friend and subscribe i really love hearing feedback from you so please leave a review and let me know what resonated in the comments just a reminder you matter you are amazing and you are a warrior